And we're continuing in the book of 2 Samuel. So you can turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. There's still Bibles in the back if you want to snag one of those. Not as much to cover this week. Don't worry. Don't get too concerned. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. All right. Beginning at verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Batanah, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a men of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also was counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, Rechab and Baanah, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. God's word. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We know that it tells us of strange things in faraway places that can sometimes seem um, very distant. Um, and yet, Lord, there's truth here. Lord, it was directed and brought to us uh, by your hand. And Lord, we can learn um, of your faithfulness to us and indeed of our need to be uh, faithful. So Father, I do pray that you would help us today to see your mercy, your grace, even through a bloody text like this, and be encouraged in our lives to live for your glory and trusting in our faithful Savior, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So uh, if you know anything about the history of Protestant missions in the world, you, you may know about a guy named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And if you don't know about him, maybe you'll remember him because he's got a name like Zinzendorf, which is not one you forget. Uh, Zinzendorf lived in Germany in the middle, uh, the early to the middle 1700s. He founded the Moravian Church. Uh, it's a denomination some of you may be familiar with. And he launched a worldwide missionary movement that was unprecedented in its time. It was really the first Protestant missionary movement. It's estimated that at one point, one in 60 people in the Moravian church were foreign missionaries. It's an incredible ratio. Uh, as the story goes, Zinzendorf would say things like this to the missionaries that he would send out. He sent them all over the world. Preach the gospel die, and be forgotten. Now, I think part of the value of this quote is that it prioritizes faithfulness to God over worldly success. Faithfully proclaim the gospel and dismiss worldly success by dying and being forgotten. I think we'll see this same perspective today in our text, that faithfulness is better than worldly success. Faithfulness to God is better than worldly success. That will be the main point that I'll draw from our text today. But first in this text, you know what? We see the wrong perspective. What happens when success is best? Ishbosheth and the two sons of Rimen will show us what happens. They don't make this perspective on life look very attractive. So first, when success is best, adversity is dismaying. Okay, that's my first point. When success is best, adversity is dismaying. And this point just makes sense, right? If you're all about success, and then you fail, that's dismaying. You're going the wrong direction. When David runs into trouble, he's got someone to call on because his priority is faithfulness to God. But what the house of Saul has done is in opposition to God. It's about personal, worldly success. And so when Abner dies, he's the guy that's going to help them become, reign the whole land. It looks to them like their plan is just flatlined. There's nobody to call on for help. And they are dismayed. That uh, phrase in verse 1, his courage failed. That uh, literally in Hebrew translates, his hand fell slack. It lost all strength. His hand became paralyzed with fear. The writer is painting for us a picture of great weakness to illustrate the danger of prioritizing worldly success. It's not a firm foundation. In fact, he makes this, uh, this picture of weakness even more powerful by telling us about this guy named Mephibosheth in verse 4. You may have felt when I read that, that felt a little bit random. Why is he throwing in this little tidbit about Mephibosheth? Uh, but it's not random. This verse tells us two important things. First, the other heir to Saul's throne could not walk. Okay? So Ishbosheth's hand is useless. And Mephibosheth's feet 
are useless. Notice the parallelism there. These are the two remaining heirs to Saul's throne. And second, it tells us that Mephibosheth was only about 12 at this time, right? It says he was five when the whole battle between Saul uh, and the Philistines occurred where Saul died. And we know it's been about seven years since then, so he's about 12. Well, that's too young to be a leader of a country even if he wasn't crippled, right? So the picture we're given is that Saul's house is out of options. It's paralyzed. It can't even move hand or foot. This is where the way of pursuing worldly success leads. People spend their whole lives trying to succeed in this world, but every single one of them ends up helpless at one point or another, wondering, what was it all for now that it's totally useless to me? When success is best and you're no longer at the top of your game, adversity is dismaying. When success is best, but you never really found much that you were successful at anyway, adversity is dismaying. When success is best and you're sitting there in a nursing home in a wheelchair with no success in sight, adversity is dismaying. But it gets worse. We secondly see here that when success is best, the weak are betrayed. Okay, that's my second point. When success is best, the weak are betrayed. Now, when you read a story, you're not always told whether someone's actions are good or bad, right, kids? So when you read, uh, let's say, Thomas the train engine, and it says that Thomas splashed mud on another train, a little box doesn't pop up that says, just so you know, that was bad, right? It doesn't normally happen that way. Stories aren't usually that obvious, You have to figure out what's good, what's bad in other ways. Uh, One way to do that is by asking if the person who does the action is the villain or the hero. What category do they fit into? Uh, Because generally, the things the villains do are bad, the things the heroes do are good. Um, Now, you have to be careful with this, right? Especially in the Bible, the only true hero is Jesus, And so, you know, if we're told especially a lot about a character, sometimes they may be the hero, sometimes they may be the villain, and sometimes they may do good and bad things in the same story. And so you've got to take other things to account, right? Maybe the results of their actions, or maybe what God says about what they did in other parts of the Bible. But in this story today, the writer gives us some clear categorical villains, And that's to make sure his readers know, whatever these guys do, you can count on, it's bad. Okay? Now, how does he do this? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. These two captains in Ishbosheth's army are described. we got Ba'ana and Rechab, sons of Rimmon. Maybe you guessed they were villains just from their names. I don't know. But they're they're men of Benjamin from the town of Beeroth, right? So they're, they're from the same tribe as Saul. Ishbosheth, Abner, all these guys are all from the tribe of Benjamin. But then we get this little note about how Beeroth is part of Benjamin, and the Beerothites fled to Gatim and have been sojourners there. And you guys are thinking, okay, what does that even mean? Why is this here? But you see, for the typical Israelite 
they read that and they're saying, oh, these are not good guys. Because they know what this means. It, for them, it's like a flashing villain alert going off in a superhero movie. <laughs> villains, villains. So let me try to explain this to you, okay? We need a little history, so you ought to pay attention. When Israel first came to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, there was a group of people living in four towns. These people were called the Gibeonites. Maybe you guys remember them. My son is named after the Gibeonites. Uh, these Gibeonites saw Israel coming and, you know, wiping people out. They saw the town of Jer uh, Jericho, the walls falling down, and they thought, we better become friends with these people real quick. So they came up with a plan. They tricked Israel. They pretended to be from very far away. I don't know if you remember this story. They, they wore, like, old clothes. They bring moldy bread. They've got their, their water bottles are all empty to act to, to show that they've come from very far away. And they, they tell the Israelites, look, we heard about how great you guys were. We've been traveling for weeks. We just thought maybe we could make a little treaty. And the Israelites say, sure. They go for it. They don't ask God first. They go for it. But, of course, they find out shortly after that that these Gibeonites are living right in the middle of the territory of the Benjamites. Now, one of those towns they lived in was called Beeroth. Okay, so that's getting us back to our text. Now, Israel honored that treaty for many years. They protected these people. They let them live in their towns until along comes Saul. Saul decides it's time to get rid of these Gibeonites. Maybe he wanted their towns right there in the middle of his tribal area. And so he tries to wipe them out. And the, the text actually references that by saying that a bunch of these people had fled to Gitaim. Gitaim was over towards the Philistines. So this event becomes a major black mark in Israel's history. In fact, we'll get to it later on in David's story where God actually sends a famine on the whole country because of the fact that Saul broke this treaty with the Gibeonites. So anybody in this event involved in, in what happened here at Beeroth and at these other towns would be considered to the rest of Israel to be a villain. They brought a whole famine on the country because of what they did. And, and see, that's where these two sons of Rimmon come in because they and their father are Benjamites who live in Beeroth and therefore presumably were part of those Benjamites who massacred and drove out the Gibeonites. So it's a bit of a complicated history, I understand. Hopefully you followed me. Any Israelite would understand what this writer means when he references this brief history. These guys are bad guys. They're not good guys. They're villains. So here we are in this text as it opens, and the, the house of Israel is paralyzed with weakness. They can't move hand or foot. And these villains are their last hope which is bad, because they are all about success. And when success is best, the weak are betrayed. And so sure enough, they go, they pay Ishbosheth a visit, they stab him in the stomach, they cut off his head. And you'll notice in verses 6 to 7 that the writer uses repetition here to drive home how terrible this murder is, okay? It is cowardly, it's vicious, it's bad. So in, in verse 5, he explains how Ishbosheth is taking his noonday rest. And then in verse 6, he tells how they killed him and they escaped. But then in verse 7, notice, 
He goes back over the scene of the crime. He wants to highlight a few details for us. This is very typical of Hebrew narrative. You'll see it often where the writer will go back and actually kind of re-walk through the event to show us a few more things. So uh, he clarifies for us, Ishbosheth was actually lying down in his bed, in his bedroom, when they killed him. And they didn't just stab him in the stomach, they cut off his head. Just like Saul, his father's head had been cut off. The details here emphasize how weak Ishbosheth is, but also how cowardly the murder is. He is totally paralyzed, right? The guy's lying down not moving when they kill him. It's a pitiful end to Saul's house. You're not supposed to feel good about it. But see, this is what happens to the weak when worldly success is prioritized. These two sons of Remen, they're just looking out for themselves. In a world that's all about success, the weak are not useful. They're not valuable. They're expendable. They're in the way. They're used as bargaining chips or to stand on for your own success. You see, we live in a world where people's ethical frameworks, you know, how they make their decisions, are often functionally utilitarian. That means that what is useful is good, what is not useful is bad. And in that world, the old, the disabled, the unborn, the socially nonconforming, the poor, the weak are not safe. And that is wrong. It shows us that success should not be best. But this discussion leads us into one more thing we should see in our text about how this is a wrong perspective on life. When success is best, wickedness is justified. Okay, that's my third point. When success is best, wickedness is justified. We see this point in verse 8, where these two guys are explaining to David what they've done. They're hoping for a reward. So they tell him, you know, we've got Ishbosheth's head here, and they interpret their actions. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king on Saul, on his offspring. You notice how, what the spin they've put on what they've just done, they claim that their wicked murder is the revenge of the Lord. They're, they're simply God's agents. Imagine what you could justify with that kind of claim. Let me be clear. You do not need to do anything evil or unrighteous in order to advance God's kingdom. He doesn't need you to disobey his law to fulfill his promises. He'll take care of the promises. You worry about growing in obedience. And you know, we can laugh at the presumption of these guys, but their approach may not be as foreign as you'd like. Here's a temptation that's common to the church. Covering up evil on the assumption that that is best for the kingdom of God. Right? How many sins get covered up in the church because people think that's what's best for the advance of the gospel. That's not what's best 
for the gospel. The gospel says we're messed up people who need a gracious Savior. That proves the point of the gospel when we see sin. But see, when ministry becomes about success, wickedness gets justified. When your brother or your sister comes to you and says, I think you're sinning here, and you begin to justify yourself, stop and ask, what am I prioritizing right now? Faithfulness to God or success? However I've defined it in my life. And if I might have a chance to convince you that faithfulness to God is a much better priority, let me shift your attention now to what happens in our text when faithfulness is best. Okay, so this will be my fourth point this morning. When faithfulness is best, adversity is redemptive. Okay, my fourth point, when faithfulness is best, adversity is redemptive. I know, it's a big religious word, redemptive. It refers to when something hard or painful, maybe, turns into something life-giving. So, Naomi's bitterness at the death of her husband and her two sons turns to sweetness when Ruth won't leave her, is redeemed by Boaz, and lays her first grandson, Obed, the grandfather of King David, on her lap. That's redemption in her life. David himself gives us this point in verse 9 when he responds to the, the two wicked sons of Rimmon. They have claimed, right, to be his redeemers. They've said, look, we freed you from Ishbosheth. We saved you, David. But David tells them in verse 9, the Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. It's subtle, but he's saying, I don't need you guys to go do your little villainous things to get me out of trouble. The Lord has turned all my troubles to sweetness in his own good time. My failures haven't left my hand slack like they did for poor old Ishbosheth because it's not about my success. It's about faithfulness. And in the kingdom of God, you've got to understand, faithfulness to God is success. Right? I mean, faithfulness for Jesus meant going to the cross. That sure looked like the wrong direction to success for most of his disciples. That's not what they thought was the right direction, but it was actually the direction of success, the direction of redemption. The suffering and death of Christ was the key to victory. I know that adversity rarely feels like it could be redeemed in the moment. But remember that we can only stand at one place in time and space at each moment in our lives. That's a very blind place to be. Try not to take too seriously your grand observations about what the horizon looks like when you're standing in the middle of a deep pit. To live in faithfulness, you've got to give up 
knowing how and, and in what way and when God will redeem your suffering. But as we continue learning from David's life, I hope you can see that, first, he is a reliable teacher on the topic of adversity. He knows what it's like. And secondly, he never abandons this conclusion that those who faithfully seek the Lord, for them, adversity is redemptive. Let me encourage you to read what David wrote in Psalm 37. Maybe you read it this evening with your families or something like that. Here's a few tidbits. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. And a little later on he says, For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake His faithful ones. When faithfulness is best, adversity is redemptive. Fifthly, when faithfulness is best, the weak are honored. Not betrayed, but honored. Uh, we see this point only briefly in our text at the very end where David, he takes the head of Ishbosheth and he buries it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Ishbosheth was his enemy, but he was weak, he was struck down, he was murdered. And David expresses honor towards him. It's a small act of kindness and honor, perhaps, but it reflects the values of God's kingdom. We see these expressed in all, his, you know, all the laws. If you want to roll through all the laws in the Old Testament, there's lots of them, but what, but what are these expressing? Over and over again, care for the weak, care for the vulnerable. We, we see this same values in, in the words of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, they condemn the people of Israel in their later years for oppressing the weak. Over and over again, that's a major theme in the writings of the prophets. We see it in the words of Jesus. He describes his kingdom as a place where children are the greatest, the weakest, the vulnerable are protected. In God's kingdom, human life as made in the image of God is valued, is protected at every stage in every circumstance. The weak are to be valued and protected the most. And in fact, David further shows the value of life by executing these murderers here at the end of the text, which leads to my sixth point, that when faithfulness is best, wickedness is judged. When faithfulness is best, wickedness is judged. When, in this sinful world in which we live, you can't value and protect one thing without judging the opposite thing. If you want to uphold what's true, you've got to label, you've got to punish, you've got to otherwise disincentivize in some way what is false. That's why justice in our world, justice in our churches is so important. It's why part of the Christian faith is a judgment day. The Bible's very clear about the judgment day. We don't always like to talk about it. It's very clear and it is important. That is a day when God will judge every sin committed. 
And so in verse 11, David references the words of God himself. He uh, references God's words in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God is God made man. And then in accordance with God's word, David has these two murderers executed. And hung up as a public warning that in his kingdom, wickedness will be judged. Now, those of you who were here last week for our long trip through the story of Abner, we saw his life, you may be saying to yourselves, hold up a second. If these two brothers got executed, what about Joab and Abishai when they killed Abner? Shouldn't they have been executed by David as well, right? Two other murderous brothers who treacherously stabbed somebody in the belly? Right? Notice the similarities even in the story there. And I think you're right to notice this inconsistency. The fact is, like David, we do not always prioritize faithfulness to God. Sometimes we prioritize worldly success, don't we? Or else why would so many things come before the time that we spend listening and Speaking to God. Maybe David felt like, you know, he just he couldn't get rid of Joab and Abishai because it was just a little too important to his success. An area, perhaps, where he felt a little sin was justified for the sake of the kingdom, of course. Yeah, I think we're seeing a theme in David's life develop where he fails here and will fail to always judge the wicked. And, and pay attention as we move forward because this will lead in his life to adversity that dismays him and to the betrayal of the weak. But this is a very very important reminder because it points us to a key truth about God's kingdom. The foundation of faithfulness in your life is trusting God's faithfulness. This is why it's God's kingdom, not yours. You can't guarantee its survival. Neither could David. But God can. This is why it's God's church, not yours. You can't guarantee its faithfulness, but he can. This is why it's God's world, not yours. He sustains it. This is why you give your family to the Lord. You can't faithfully keep, teach, know, and lead them. But he can. This is why even your own faith, your belief in God is from him. You can't maintain it. You can't gain it. You can't assure yourself of it by, you know, reading enough books or by doing enough good things or by learning enough, you know, Bible facts. You ask God for faith and he faithfully gives it to you. Just as he has faithfully given you his son, as your prophet, as your priest, and as your king. 
Faithfulness is better than success. But what's best is a faithful Savior. And that is my seventh and final point. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for our faithful Savior. We know that like David, we will not always be consistent in faithfully seeking you. Sometimes we will seek success. That will be what's best for us, we think. But it's not. It's not what's best. When success is best, people are hurt. The weak are betrayed. We live in dismay. Wickedness is justified. And so we ask that as we see this story, Lord, in the Bible, we look back upon the beginnings of David's kingdom and indeed your kingdom, that we would desire to faithfully seek you and not success. Lord, we would be okay with proclaiming the gospel, dying, and being forgotten. For we know you will not forget us. You are faithful even when we are not. And we are grateful for that truth and how it comforts us today as we live our lives to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.